Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. I am so excited about today's guest. Today I'm speaking with Linda McGurk, a Swedish-American freelance writer and author of the book There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, a Scandinavian mom's secret for raising healthy, resilient, and confident kids. Linda is a passionate advocate for the Nordic outdoor tradition Friluftsleve and believes that the best childhood memories are created outside while jumping in puddles, digging in dirt, catching bugs, and climbing trees. Her latest book, The Open Air Life, Discover the Nordic Art of Friluftsleve and Connect with Nature Every Day, was published earlier this month. I have wanted to interview Linda ever since I read her first book, and I was delighted to talk with her about her latest book. In this conversation, we discuss Linda's experiences parenting bilingual and bicultural daughters, as well as her own experiences with bilingualism and biculturalism. We talk about the Nordic preschool curriculum and parallels with the Montessori approach to early childhood. We also talk about the benefits of being outside for both children and adults and how we can motivate ourselves to spend more time outdoors. You can find Linda on Facebook and Instagram at Rain or Shine Mama, that's Mama with two M's, and her website is rainorshinemama.com. Her latest book, The Open Air Life, is available everywhere books are sold. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Linda. Hi, Linda. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, and thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you today. So to start, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. So I am a journalist uh, and author of uh, the parenting memoir, There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, and also my new book uh, is called The Open Air Life. And uh, I, I was born and raised in Sweden, but I've lived in the U.S. for about 15 years. And then uh, a few years back, I, I moved uh, back to Sweden, and um, I uh, raised two girls uh, they're 11 and 14 and so we all live here now and and um, yeah that's that's the the short the short version <laughs> awesome uh, well we're gonna talk about all about your books but to start I would love to hear about your language experiences growing up and what role did languages play in your life yeah so I've thought about this some and, and uh, you know, growing up in Sweden, uh, with Sweden being such a small country, you've always, I've always been aware that uh, in order to like broaden your horizon and, and maybe open up more opportunities, you have to know more languages. And that's kind of uh, generally accepted here in Sweden. So uh, English is a mandatory subject uh, in school. I learned it from uh, fourth grade, but now they start even earlier um, with just introducing it slowly with like, or very in a very playful manner with, with songs and, and things like that already in like, I think first grade. So, so we all know that, um, that Swedish is a very small language spoken by only 10 million people. And uh, we, uh, um, we know that languages are a bridge uh, to the world. So, so it's important for sure. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about your daughters. So now they have lived both in the U.S. and Sweden, and I imagine they feel a strong connection to both countries and both cultures. So what have been some of the joys and challenges of raising bilingual and bicultural children for you? I think the biggest joy has been to see them now being fully rooted in both cultures. Um, 
it really, I think it, it's really beneficial to them, not the least because they can communicate fully with all of their extended family. So there's no language barrier there whatsoever. And I, I know of some families where it's a problem and, and sure, you, you know, you can communicate with, um, with body language too, but at some point, you know, that only goes so far. So to get that sort of deeper connection, I think language is really crucial. And um, so, so I'm, I'm very happy that we, or that I decided to go this route to, to, uh, to speak Swedish with them from the get go. Um, But that was also one of the challenges because it was, uh, I wouldn't say frowned upon, but there, I know people were skeptical of it um, at the time when my daughters were little, at least with my first daughter, I think then when they saw that she turned out okay, (laughs) you know, because I think, People were, you know, well-meaning. I mean, they were worried that she was going to be slow to speak and that she wasn't going to speak English properly. Um, and, and there were concerns like that. So I think trying to get other people to understand um, that what I was doing was going to be beneficial, I think that was the hardest part. I never doubted it. Uh, I did some research uh, before I had uh, my first daughter and uh, uh, you know she yeah did she start to speak a little later than other kids yeah maybe but I didn't really see a problem with that I could tell that she was still um, she still understood everything that was spoken to her in English but when she talked she initially talked in Swedish. She, she would respond in Swedish, even though somebody spoke to her in English. Um, but that was just, that was a phase. And uh, eventually she started speaking English as well. And I was very strict. I had read somewhere that for, for this to be successful or for, for to facilitate the learning of two languages from the get-go, you should separate uh, the language is either by person or place so that, the, you know, one person always speaks the same language with the kids or that they always speak, uh, you know, the, the, the other language um, at, for example, at preschool so that it's connected to a certain place. And so in my case, it was uh, connected to people. So I always spoke Swedish with them as well as my my family. They always um you know, spoke Swedish with the girls too. And so, so I, I stuck with my guns on that. And, and, the, and granted there were times like at the dinner table, cause my, uh, the girl's dad, only, he only speaks very, or understands very basic Swedish. So at some point it was starting to get hard for him to follow us or our conversations. And at that point I started you know, talking to the girls in Swedish first and then translating so that he wouldn't feel excluded. Uh, so that was kind of a challenge too, because you want the whole family to be able to, to um, have a conversation and, and nobody feel excluded. So, yeah, but, you know, in hindsight, I'm, I, I do it over again in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear that so often um, people's fears or doubts about introducing two languages right from infancy and whether it will cause language delays and it it really doesn't so it's wonderful that you were um you know that you were so confident and really stuck to your guns on that yeah I'm sure it it helped them so much right right and there were some there were some instances uh, there was um my daughter like there were these like just uh funny um uh, things that happen with, with the language too, where uh, she would say, so uh, th- saying thank you in, uh, in Swedish, it's tak, uh, so T-A-C-K. But it, it, when she was really little, she had a hard time saying T. So her T's, they sounded like F. And so, <laughs> so, so when she were to like, 
thank people, she <laughs> accidentally like said the F word. And uh, uh, so that was kind of awkward. So I always had to explain, you know, like, okay, that's <laughs> this is the word in Swedish. And she's not like throwing the F bomb around. Um, so yeah, we had we had some things like that going on. But but everybody could kind of have have a good laugh about it. And, uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. What language do they speak to each other in? Um, when we lived in the U.S., they would uh, normally speak English. And now that we live in Sweden, they speak Swedish. So it just depends on the context. Um, they, when they go to the U S in the summertime, they, they spend, they spend about five or six weeks in the U S in the summertime and they just switch over to, to English at that point. Wow. And then when they're here, um, they speak Swedish except for when their, their dad is here and visits, uh, cause he lives in the U S now and I live here. Um, when he's here and visits, they start speaking English among themselves too. So, oh, wow. so that just happens organically. Um, yeah. So I first discovered your work when I read your first book, There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather. And I found a lot of parallels between Scandinavian parenting and Montessori. And some of the parallels I thought of myself when I was reading the book were following the child's lead, connecting to nature, and learning through play. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Scandinavian approach to early childhood education is like? Yeah, so uh, so you're right. It does have some, some defi- definitely some similarities with uh, Montessori uh, education. And uh, I think one of the biggest differences uh, that I noticed after I um, started raising my daughters in the U.S. was that preschool here in Scandinavia is uh, like a whole child care model. So it's not something that you take your kids to like twice or three times a week for a few hours to practice, um, uh, you know, uh, letters and, and um uh, like letter tracing and uh, wall words and, and academic things like that. It's more of a, um, a holistic approach to childcare where, uh, yeah, I think the main, the main idea is to sort of instill like a lifelong love for learning. That's clearly expressed in the national curriculum for the preschool and um, like you said, it's play-based, it's child-led. Um, the teachers kind of call themselves co-discoverers. So it's very much um, focused on asking questions to sort of spur uh, the children's curi- curiosity and uh, critical thinking skills. And uh, yeah, it's also very led by the children's interests. So. Um, they spend a lot of time outside as well, and, and a lot of the, the preschools take uh, the kids to some nearby woods, for example. Uh, and uh, once once they're there, they'll just let the, the children's interest uh, lead. So if they see an anthill, you know, they might stop by it and, and start, you know, talking about the ants. Or if they see some animal droppings, they might ask questions about what animal it might be um, that left the droppings and so forth. And, and um, you know, the academic skills, uh, yeah, they, they're always sort of in the background, uh, but they're not, they're just taught sort of organically uh, and, uh, and um, uh, as it comes up during the day. So there are no like, uh, math <laughs> drills or number drills. They're, um, they're just uh, uh, sort of organic ways of uh, using that terminology. For example, you know, talking about objects and where they are in relation to each other, and that's using math words um, as well. Um, and also, uh, there are no drills to, to teach literacy. The main, the main way of teaching literacy at preschool, I think, is by reading out loud and sort of nurturing the children's interest in 
um, and stories and storytelling and reading. Um, so, so it, it is different that way. It's definitely less academically focused and more, more reserved for playtime. And then at age six, uh, the children start what would be the equivalent to kindergarten. So it's a whole year later. And that's when they start working more, uh, more, more focused on, uh, on the academic subjects in a more, more organized way. So, yeah, it seems like, um, like a whole societal approach to supporting children's development through exploration and play. It's, it's really beautiful. Um, you know, yeah. when I was preparing to have you on the podcast, I <clears throat> asked some friends, I posted in my Instagram stories, what questions would you like me to ask Linda? And I asked some friends who I knew had also read your book and everyone said, ask her about babies napping outside. <laughs> you must hear that all the time. <laughs> I do. But I think that's so shocking to us as Americans. I love it. I'm yeah. not a mother, but I someday hope to have a baby napping outside. <laughs> yes, that is probably the one thing that I get the most questions about, really. Yeah. It's, uh, it is a, a cultural thing. We, uh, it's, it's something that's sort of passed down from generation to generation. Um, I don't know exactly when or where it, it originated. Uh, there's very little, um, uh, little uh, written about that, but it might have been that indoor air quality wasn't so good uh, back in the day. I don't know. Or I think we also just have this very ingrained idea that fresh air is good for you. And of course you want your baby to have the you know, nothing but the best. And so you park them outside um, for their naps. And um, whatever little research there's been on this phenomenon shows that the babies do take longer um, longer naps outside and that they're also more uh, more energetic and have a better appetite afterwards. So it's, uh, yeah, it's one of those cultural um, habits that I brought from Sweden um, to the U.S. when, when I moved there. But it was something that I didn't advertise too much because I knew people would find it strange, especially in the winter time. Uh, it could get taken out of context and uh, taken the wrong way. Um, so yeah, I, <laughs> I uh, but I, I would park my 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 kids, uh, you know, out um, in the or uh, on our back porch. We we live pretty in a pretty secluded area, so. Oh, yeah. I love that it, it makes me want to take a nap outside. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your new book. I'm going to try mm -hmm. to pronounce this word right. Your new book focuses on Brilluftsliv. How was that? Yes. Is that good? Um, that was really good. <laughs> thank you. Um, so free is a Nordic concept mm -hmm. translated as open air life. And you describe yeah. it as simple life where humans and nature intersect. Um, and one of the many aspects that you write about is the benefits for children to spend time outdoors, which is, of course, the theme of your first book as well. So what are some of the main benefits of spending time outdoors for children and also for adults? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's really, when you think about it, nature is, is where we evolved and I see it as our true home. And from that perspective, nature really provides everything that a child needs in early childhood. Um, and I think instinctively we already knew this, but now the research is starting to catch up as well. So we're seeing all sorts of studies come out on how nature benefits children's, um, you know, physical and mental health, as well as their, you know, social skills and, and cognitive development. Um, so, yeah, so like, it, you know, playing outdoors, obviously, it builds strong muscles, it exposes them to vitamin D, which is crucial to, you know, your immune system, builds strong bones um, coordination skills. Um, and then you have, um, 
uh, yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah, gross, uh, gross motor skills like balance and, and coordination, things like that. Um, but also social skills like w- working as a team and um, uh, solving problems. Um, we also find that natural environments provide like natural challenges uh, for kids. So they, they find ways of challenging themselves, both physically and um, mentally, like whether they see a, a, a big rock that they want to climb up on or a tree or, or trying to cross a creek. Uh, nature is just full of these opportunities for kids to challenge themselves. And that's how they grow. And that's how they learn how to manage risk and, and uh, self-regulate. Um, and also uh, crucial to developing executive, executive function, which is, um, you know, really crucial to success in life, uh, both, both in your personal life and, and, uh, in work life. So, um, and, and then also, of course, we have the relaxing properties of nature. And I think adults might, you know, think more about that aspect. I think we seek out nature because we, you know, we go for a walk and we feel, we can literally feel our stress sort of drain away, um, and we can measure these effects too. Uh, our blood pressure goes down. Um, our cortisol cortisol levels go down. Cortisol is, uh, uh, of course, associated with uh, stress. And um, uh, you know, uh, we just feel more relaxed when we're outside. The sounds of nature are soothing. Um, and uh, being in green spaces and blue spaces, which is uh, water, um, it uh, it really it it boosts our well-being and our happiness. Even uh, there are several or many studies showing that um, that being uh, in those being in nature is is um, beneficial to our overall um, physical and mental health. So. You never, never get too old for it. And that's what's so great about Friluftsliv is that, you know, you, um, you introduce it when kids are young from, yeah, that's where the, the napping outside comes in. So you introduce it uh, early and then it's something that you can, uh, that you can enjoy all life. Like it's lifelong, really. Yeah, and that was, you know, that's another parallel that I found to Montessori education that um, you write that Friluftsliv has found its way into the preschool curriculum in Nordic countries. And, um, you know, in Montessori, it's not many Montessoris are not quite forced preschools, but there is a big emphasis on um, studying botany and experiencing nature. I used to work at a Montessori school in Manhattan, and that was one of the biggest challenges is how do we get the children to experience nature in the middle yeah. of New York City? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, it was definitely easier when I worked at a school um, yeah. than I worked at a school in Austin. We had a big backyard and the children could mm. run around and pick up leaves and yeah. look at the blades of grass. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose you have Central Park, um, which is a great resource. Um, and I know preschools uh, in the cities here too. Um, if you know, sometimes they go to local parks, but sometimes they'll also um, either they have their own bus or they they'll charter a bus and they will go out to a nature area outside of the city for for the day. Um, so I think some schools do that as well to get out of the city a little more. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so what are some other ways that preschool incorporates nature and outdoors into the curriculum other than having that outdoor playtime structure? Um, I think, you know, in uh, in the Swedish preschool curriculum, um, it actually mandates that children, it actually says that children have the right to play outside, both in natural and uh, planned uh, environments and planned environments being more of your sort of traditional playground uh, type environment. And so a lot of, so all the preschools have pretty large, um, you call it like in, uh, schoolyards or yeah, like enclosed schoolyards where the children have a lot of 
freedom to to uh, just play. Um, so that's where they spend a lot of a lot of time throughout the day. Um, and then, as I mentioned uh, before, a lot of the preschools have something called a school forest, which is mm-hmm. a, a designated area in in a nearby uh, in some nearby woods. So they have permissions from the landowner to maybe do, uh, yeah, do some things that wouldn't otherwise be allowed, like maybe having some permanent structures and, and things like that. Um, so I think just free play is a huge part of it um, because I think because the preschool system here is really geared towards play-based learning and, and the, the teachers recognize the power of learning through play uh, and exploration. Um, and sometimes I know too that the schools uh, and maybe especially the forest schools, but some of the traditional ones too, um, they will have a fire outside and, and cook over the mm. fire. Um, and of course the fire, you know, that brings uh, warmth and, and light. Uh, we, it, you know, we have a, a long dark season here. Um, but it's also just a nice way for, for the kids and the teachers to gather, um, together around the fire. Um, and also, uh, especially the forest schools, you know, they're, they're pretty good about using uh, tools. Uh, so that's another thing that the kids are, are doing outside, you know, making things um, uh, like, yeah, learning bush skills, uh, things like that. So, yeah, so those are a few, just a few examples. But most of it is just, you know, just free play, free play yeah. outdoors. That's, um, yeah, that's the main, main focus, really. Yeah. Ah, I love it. It's yeah. it's so great. You write um you write that to let preschools handle knives and preschoolers handle knives yeah. and fire is not only considered normal but is approved as good parenting. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um I know. Yeah. I I remember so clearly I was in summer camp when I first lit a match for the first time. I was probably 10. I wasn't that young. Yeah. But I remember feeling so proud of myself and so yeah. accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. They are important skills, good, really good skills to have. Uh, it is empowering for adults too. So if you haven't learned as a child, you know, it's not too late. You can still learn. And, and that's part of what Friluf's Liv is about too, you know, gaining those skills because it makes you, you know, it's, it's a competency that, uh, that a lot of people lack today because just because, you know, we live in the city, uh, we, um, uh, uh, we are more a lot more removed from nature than we used to be. So uh, we don't, uh, most of us don't work, uh, you know, work in the fields anymore. We don't have that sort of daily contact. And so a lot of those uh, skills that everybody used to know have sort of been lost. And Sriluslev is one way to, to regain those, um, those skills. Interrupting my conversation for just a minute to tell you about multilingual Montessori consultations. I conduct language consultations with families, schools, and teachers about Montessori education and multiple language acquisition and development. If you have questions about how to raise bilingual or multilingual children, if you're interested in introducing an additional language to your child but not sure how to go about it, or if you're looking for advice on how to incorporate Montessori into your family's daily routine, you can schedule a one-on-one session with me to discuss all of these topics and more. Reach out to me through the link in the show notes or on Instagram if you'd like more information about scheduling a consultation. So one of my favorite sections of the Open Air Life is where you list all of the words the Swedish language has for different types of walks. Um, (laughs) So if you wouldn't mind, I would love to read the English word and then you tell us the Swedish word. Um, Uh I don't, you know, we don't have that many words for walks in English. I guess we just (laughs) don't take as many walks, but I thought this was really cool. And I always find that, you know, languages give us an insight into culture and priorities um yeah okay so here we go barefoot walk so barefoot promenade 
Yeah, so that's obviously wa like walking without shoes. Yeah. Stroller walk. Barnvagnspromenade. And that one we talked about. Um, yes. <laughs> evening walk. Kvällspromenade. And that's, uh, yeah, walk, you know, walking uh, in the dark, basically, usually here, at least, where it's dark in the wintertime, you know, after, after work. What kind, of, um, what kind of light would you bring along with you? Uh, usually a headlight. And then I would wear a good uh, high visibility vest, too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that one goes with the lunchtime walk. Yeah. Uh, lunch promenade. Which is, uh, yeah, it's what you would do at work. Uh, squeeze in a little walk during, uh, during work hours or in between work hours. Uh, it always helps uh, boost creativity and, uh, yeah, gives your brain uh, a break. That one I've definitely done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this one I love, Moonlight Walk. Yes, Monchens uh, Promenade. Uh, so that's when you take advantage of the full moon and walk without um, any artificial lights and just try to stick with um, with the light from the moon. And it can be quite quite magical, especially in the winter time if there's snow on the ground and when the the moon reflects off the snow, uh, it creates this really magical light. Yeah. Um, then there is reflector walk or flashlight walk. Yeah, reflex promenade, uh, which is uh, something that we usually do in the winter time too, because it's dark and you're trying to find fun things to do with the kids. So it's a, a walk where there are reflectors uh, placed like on trees or oh, um, cool. rocks and things like that. And you walk with a flashlight and you try to find, try to find all the reflectors that are sort of hidden along a trail oh that's cool and mm. the next one is forest walk yeah skooks promenade this is my favorite i think <laughs> it's it's what i do almost every day um yeah just walking in the forest and uh yeah it's perfect for quiet contemplation and if you're seeking solitude i feel like being enveloped by trees is um, yeah, definitely uh, the way to go. And you say, be sure to leave your headphones at home. I'm really bad at that. Yeah. I always listen to <laughs> podcasts or audiobooks, but I need to take yeah. challenge myself to take that time in silence. I know. I'm a multitasker too, so it yeah, it's a challenge for me too. But I, I really, I, I, I'm usually pretty good about it. Um, I do sometimes when I feel more like having company, I might call somebody. So I'll have it like. I'm talking to somebody while I'm walking, but most of the time, I'd say nine times out of 10, I just walk by myself and um, without, you know, my phone uh, interfering with anything because it's, there's just a lot of relaxation um, that comes with that, that kind of solitude and, and contemplation. So, yeah, this next one, everyone's probably very familiar with quick walk. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> snub promenade. Um, yeah, if you don't have a lot of time, you know, during the work week, um, just squeezing in a quick 15-minute walk, um, even that can do wonders, you know, for your mental uh, well-being. So, yeah, so I think it's a common one for people who have a packed schedule. Yeah, this next one might be my favorite, beach walk. Yeah. Strand promenade. <laughs> so that's yeah, uh, just walking around, uh, walking along the, along the water, and yeah, yeah I, that's another favorite of mine too. Yeah, I find the water so calming, and and the sound of mm. the waves. Um, yes. That sometimes when when I'm walking at the ocean, I can uh, challenge myself to leave the headphones behind because yeah. I love to listen to the sound of the waves. It's very soothing. Yeah. All right, last one is quiz walk. Yeah, tips promenade. This is an old, old classic. Uh, it's uh, old. Um, you a, a lot of times something that we do like on the weekends. It's an old Sunday activity that I grew up with, and it's uh, uh, usually something that families will do together. 
Um, you, you have uh, questions. It used to be that you would put up like little um, uh, like sheets of paper with questions along a trail. And then you'd walk and walk along the trail and you'll, you know, answer the questions. Today, a lot of them are just done like electronically. So you have a question, like you have an app, <laughs> of course, so there's an app for everything. So you just open the app um, uh, to get the questions. Um, but yeah, just, uh, just a fun, fun family activity. So. Yeah. Well, that was great. Thanks for indulging me. I thought that was really fun. I loved, <laughs> I loved reading all those different types yeah. of walks. <laughs> and it's true what you said about the language, like really reflecting what's, um, what's important to people. And I think walking is, um, it's a really important part of everyday life here. Mm. And, um, and so we also have a lot of different versions of it and a lot of different words to describe it. Yeah. I know they always say that, that in Inuit, Inuit people, I don't know if I, I pronounced that right, that they have like a thousand different words for snow. I don't know if that's, if that's a myth or if it's true, but it, you know, this would be like, I think the equivalent, uh, yeah. <laughs> for the Swedish language yeah Yeah. you know and I feel like during the pandemic walks got a bad reputation people were just like oh going on my stupid daily walk again around my neighborhood but it's really I mean I feel like now I need to get like disassociate walks with Mm. just getting out of my apartment during a lockdown situation Mm. and and get back to enjoying walks and what yes. you know just yeah. walking to be outside not for yeah. you write about that a lot too that freelance right. is um, about not being competitive and spending time in yeah. nature that's not for a goal right it's yeah the the whole foundation of it is to to be outside for personal wellness and to feel joy um that's important too because now I, I feel like we've talked, you know, we, we often, we, we focus so much on the benefits and like the research and, and, and that's all, that's fine. You know, we need that, I think, but I also don't just go outside to, you know, to prevent osteoporosis or to reduce my risk of heart disease. I go outside because I enjoy connecting with nature. And because to me, it's kind of, it's almost like a spiritual experience. Uh, some of the places that I go to that are, uh, you know, I'm, I might not feel that on every, every rainy walk that I go <laughs> on, but sometimes you'll end up in a, in a particularly awe-inspiring place. And uh, to me, you know, that's, that feeling of being a part of something that's larger than yourself, something that's been there for eons and will be there for, you know, long after we're gone. Um, that's really special. And that's, um, yeah, it definitely has a, uh, a spiritual, um, meaning to me. Yeah. I love that too. I, I've, I, yeah. it's hard to find those places for me in, a city, although I did go to Central Park this weekend and it was beautiful. Yeah. Um, but when you said that, I was thinking about places I've traveled to that I really mm. did feel like a bigger than me sort of feeling yeah. about how magical and old and vast the space is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important to to get out and visit those places. You know, if you if you can, at least a few times per year. But then the everyday. The everyday connection is important too. I think even more important because that's that's what you can do on a regular basis. And uh, you know, and I've been in New York a couple of times too. And and uh, I also really love what the city has done with the High Line. Um, yes. I, you know, just being elevated for I don't know how many feet. What is it like thirty feet or something like that up from the ground? It's amazing what that did. And just having those native plants and you know, you know, you're still in the city, but somehow it just felt magical to me. I felt like just being elevated that, you know, that little, um, that distance, it made, it put me closer to the stars. And I, I just, it just felt really different. I felt like the, the noise from the traffic was, it was just, um, uh, dampened a little bit and, and, uh, 
you know, I think we need a lot more uh, of that. Um, yeah. I think cities, if we can green our cities, that will go a long ways to towards uh, us, um, towards our, our well-being and just like boosting our well-being. Yeah. Because um, I don't think most people are not going to, you know, start homesteading and leave, leave the <laughs> cities and, and start homesteading. I know there's a movement for that too, but I don't think we're going to go back to the old ways. Um, so I think we need to reinvent ourselves a little bit and how, um, how we build cities and what kind of, you know, what, what kind of environments are we creating uh, for ourselves? Are we creating cities that can, that are detrimental to our health, which is the case today, or do we, do we actually build cities that can boost our health? I think those are the choices that we have. And a lot of cities are starting to, to understand this now. And I think they're going to have a competitive advantage. Um, so I think people um, are going to move where, where they can, you know, recreate in outside where there are urban trails to take advantage of and, and where they can easily access nature. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Even hearing you say that, I'm like, oh, I want to move yeah. to a city that has like nature right there. <laughs> what are some yeah. what are some cities that you've either visited or that you know of that are really sort of on the forefront of that or that really have a great balance between city and nature? Um, well, spontaneously, I think like a lot of the Scandinavian cities, like Stockholm is like covered in green green space like 40 percent covered in green spaces and there's even um there's a national park like basically a 30 minute uh uh, bus ride from the from the from downtown and there's uh there's nature preserves there's a huge um uh, area where you can camp out like (laughs) not far from from downtown so I think Stockholm is, is really nice that way. Um, but in terms of the U.S., I write about this in my book, too. Um, and I haven't, uh, I haven't, I haven't uh, been in Minneapolis, St. Paul, aside from changing planes there. So I can't speak, you know, speak to it from personal experience. But Minneapolis, St. Paul um, is constantly ranking in the top, you know, top three um, cities in the U.S. in terms of access to green space and, and urban trails. So uh, if, if we're looking at the U.S., I think, um, you know, I think they are, uh, uh, yeah, a, a, role, a role model maybe to look at. Changing topics a little bit, one section of your book that I found really fascinating was when you wrote about the impact of the invention of fire on the development of the human species and how that related to the development of language. So I want to read a very short quote from your book. You write, so powerful was the impact of controlling fire that Charles Darwin considered it the greatest discovery of humanity except for language. And as it turned out, fire had a hand in that too, as sitting around the hearth was a social custom that helped the development of language and our ability to tell stories. So I'd love to hear about that connection a bit and why is sitting around a fire and talking such an essential human experience? You know, um, it really, fire really revolutionized the way we live our lives. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it gives us warmth, uh, light, and, um, and back then, you know, protection against predators too. Um, and of course, a way to prepare food, which was a huge, a huge improvement. Um, and I, I believe that, you know, home is where the food is. Uh, I think it still is, yeah. <laughs> you know, just think of the average house party. It seems like the party's always in the kitchen you know, <laughs> because where the food is. Um, so I think once we mastered fire, you know, we had the campfire, um, the, the campfire at first and, and later the hearth um, became a gathering point uh, before fire, you know, after, after darkness set in, um, I think people, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there was no, 
there was no natural gathering point. Well, fire uh, provided that. And uh, so after all the chores were done, like our ancestors would sit down around the fire and that's when they had uh, time uh, left over. And, uh, you know, the daylight was gone, so they couldn't work, they couldn't work um, uh, to gather food any, anymore. And, and so that opened up like this whole uh, new, this new time slot um, opened up for storytelling. So that's where the connection to um, the development of fire or development of language comes in. And, uh, and I think it's still very powerful. I write about this in my book, too, how sitting around the fire can really bring us closer together, closer to our loved ones. Uh, I've seen it with my own family, and I hear other people talking about it, too. It, there's just something about that dim light that makes us feel secure, and it's cozy. And um, I think it helps people to open up and maybe talk about things that you're normally not comfortable sharing or, you know, it opens up for becoming more personal, I think. And you're sitting often like in a circle. And I think that's very powerful too. Um, as opposed to sitting, uh, like at a, at a table, dinner table. And so there are a lot of aspects about fire that, um, you know, I think it makes it this perfect, um, perfect space for, for storytelling. And I think, you know, these days it seems like we, we are, we tell all our stories online, like in social media, but I, yeah. I write that, um, the fire, you know, that was the original social media because that's where, where the stories originated. And, and it's a nice tradition that I want to pass on to my children. I think it's important for them to know where they come from and, um, and, uh, uh, rather than just reading about it on social media, I, I you know, there's, there's definitely, uh, something to, uh, telling people things in, in person rather than uh, just reading it online, I think. So, so it's definitely a, a time for, to, to just sit and, and, um, strengthen family bonds for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think that we can all, recall a time sitting around a fire where you just mm. felt like you were part of a group and part of a community. Um, I mean, I remember like going to Girl Scout camp as a child and sitting around the fire or sitting in someone's backyard, sitting around the fire. And um, yeah. nowadays in my life, I feel like those occasions are so rare that I can kind of think of them as yeah. individual moments, but I hope that they'll be more common. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful way to connect with my children. Now that they're a bit older, um, you know, they uh, it's, it's one of our main ways to, to connect as a family is cooking outside, um, camping and cooking outside. Uh, and uh, yeah, just having, having that fire, it really, really adds to the family dynamic, I think. So I want to briefly go back to talking about children being outside in all types of weather. Um, and I want to read a quote, another quote from your book. You write, Nordic parents encourage outdoor play in all types of weather because they believe it's healthy and fosters resilience. It also saves children from merely tolerating the bad days in favor of a handful of good ones, a life of endless expectations and conditions where happiness hinges on sunshine. I loved that. And I, I found I find that the mentality of fostering resilience and grit is also very in line with Montessori education and philosophy. Mm. Um, so how have you seen this theme present itself in your own experiences as a mother? Uh, yeah, I know it's it's funny that we don't think of uh, being outside or dressing for the weather. We don't look at that as a skill. Uh, but it really is, I think. I think that's one of the most basic skills. Um, it, it definitely is here in Scandinavia. It's one of the basic skills that you learn uh, when you're little. Um, and I, you know, you can see that resilience, <laughs> how it begins to develop already when you, you see a, 
a, a three-year-old, you know, trying to get dressed for, for me, for going outside. And they're going to, you know, put on these like three layers of clothing. And um, of course, when it's just you and your child, uh, it's tempting to just uh, go ahead and, and help them. I'm guilty of that myself too. But what I find fascinating is when you go to preschool here in, in Sweden and, uh, and you see a whole group of say 15, 20 three-year-olds and they're all getting to, you know getting ready together with like minimal help from the teachers and you realize that wow already they have sort of learned that amount of resilience that you know that and patience um that it takes to just dress to go outside and um you know so that's that's just the 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 start of it and then uh you know i think nature is just the perfect place to develop grit I mentioned earlier you know kids it's full of natural obstacles for kids to to try try their hand at you know um and a perfect place to overcome fears um taking on challenges and as parents I think uh you know I think our main role is to find sort of some balance there between being supportive of uh, of them taking risks and, and not, uh, you know, uh, not push too hard. Uh, I, I see with my kids, sometimes I have to push them a little bit because they, they don't want to, yeah, you're on a hike and they don't, yeah, they, they, you start out and it's all whining and moaning and they, they don't think they're ever going to make it to the end. And so you kind of have to be that motor that keeps it going. And then, and then they, you know, they make it and I knew they would. And, uh, and you can tell that they're really proud of themselves once, once they get past that, um, that hurdle, that mental uh, obstacle, because that's what it's about, I think. Um, you know, then, uh, I, you know, they, uh, you, you can tell that they, they become proud of them, of their accomplishment. And, uh, I just think it's it's a really good lesson that can be extrapolated to other areas of life. So um, it's not just about nature and, and being able to complete a hike. It's it's also how well uh, it's going to translate to how well you're uh, able to finish a task at work later on in life. Uh, that's where that executive function comes in again. Your ability to to plan ahead and um, and uh, meet goals that you've set up for yourself. And I think, you know, in, in nature, it's just uh, that that's usually, at least for older kids, you know, you have a goal, like we're going to do, uh, you know, we're maybe we're going to climb this, this to this mountaintop, or we're going to go to this waterfall or, or whatever it is. Uh, with the younger kids, it's more about letting them play and um, not, uh, not interfering uh, too much. I think the challenge for a lot of parents is to not to to dare to step back and just sort of allow this process to to unfold where children try their abilities um, on uh, natural like on you know what whether they're climbing trees or uh, skipping uh, rocks or you know balancing uh, across a creek or whatever it might be. Um, this sort of risky play is, is a, a great way for them to, to develop that grit and, and resilience. And uh, uh, I think as parents, we have to try real hard not to immediately step in and, and scoop them up. If, if they fall, you know, let them, let them make their mistakes and let them get up. Um, you know, I think that's part, that's an important part of it too. Uh, in that uh, development of that, that grit. So, yeah, definitely. Um, and you probably get this question all the time, but I think that parents, especially in the U.S., we I don't think that we grew up knowing how to dress for every weather condition. <laughs> so what are some of the basics of dressing yeah. children for any type of weather condition or what do what what should parents know when they're looking for outdoor weather clothing? Yeah, I think so the gold standard 
just like it is for adults is uh, layering. Uh, it's it, just because it makes uh, it, may, it, it makes for a whole clothing system that is flexible and adaptable for the seasons. So, you know, you want to get used to thinking in layers. So, you know, you got your base layer, which is um, uh, the layer closest to your body. Uh, it can be synthetic or a natural material like wool, which is, uh, you know, the warmest uh, base layer material. And, um, uh, you know, on really cold days, you want to avoid cotton um, because it, it just, if the kids get sweaty, cotton um uh it 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 makes uh it makes you cold it doesn't it doesn't wick moisture very well so um so that's the base layer and then the the middle layer that's the warming la uh, layer that traps um that traps heat next to your body uh, it creates uh, little air pockets that that uh traps the heat and that could be like a fleece um, you know, fleece uh, jacket and, and uh, fleece pants, uh, for example, or it can be like a puffy jacket too. Um, and then your outer layer, which could be coveralls or uh, a combination of uh, pants and jacket and of course mittens and, and boots um, and hat. Um, and um, I, I really like the coveralls for the younger kids because it just uh, eliminates that hassle of getting snow <laughs> where you don't want it, <laughs> you know, at the, at the waist. And, uh, it, it, and, and the other thing is I, I get um, people comment sometimes, well, you know, I, I can't afford like a $150 wool base layer for my kids that they're going to outgrow in a year. You know, what do I do? And I say, well, put your money into the outer layer. If, if you're on a tight budget, then the outer layer, that's what's going to protect your child against the weather. You, you need something that's waterproof and um, windproof uh, and uh, tear resistant too. So preferably, you know, some really strong polyester or nylon material. Um, because kids inevitably, you know, if you take them outside to play in the winter time, then they're gonna they're gonna tear tear their clothes up. And so, uh, so definitely, you know, stick with those brands that focus on uh, making good outdoor play clothes for kids. Not just that was one difficulty that I had when I was uh, shopping for my kids when they were little in the U.S. I felt like a lot of the winter clothes for kids, they were just geared towards like skiing and mm. uh, snow sports. And I just like this, there's no way this is going to hold up for like climbing trees. <laughs> and it didn't. So, yeah. So, so that's interesting. You know, you got to choose. I, th I think it's different today. That was, you know, almost 15 years ago. Um, I think a lot of the, the, the clothing manufacturers in the U.S. have started to catch up today they, because of this uh, big movement to get kids back outside to play. Um, I think that's created a market for that, whereas there wasn't so much one before. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but, but the Scandinavian brands are always, uh, always a, a <laughs> safe safe bet as well. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, is there anything else that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about, about your book or languages or early childhood? Uh, yeah, so many topics. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, we uh, covered a lot. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and, and yeah, I guess I, I could say that about my book is that, you know, it, it really, it finds a lot of overlap, uh, both between uh, biculturalism and bilingualism by including a lot of those uh, words. And um, um, even though Friluftsliv is a, is a, a Nordic custom, um, you know, from the beginning, I... I think, you know, our need for nature is universal and I have no doubt that, that this, you know, 
philosophical lifestyle that it is that it can benefit people everywhere. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping this book will have big traction and um, that people will really start to recognize all the benefits of, um, of spending more time outside, um, both within without kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as a person who does not have children, it still made me want to go outside, go camping, go for a walk in the woods. Um, yeah. Yeah. So everyone should go read your book, The Open Air Life, and and your previous book, which I also loved. There's no such thing as bad weather. So right. thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. I am so excited about today's guest. Today I'm speaking with Linda McGurk, a Swedish-American freelance writer and author of the book There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, a Scandinavian mom's secret for raising healthy, resilient, and confident kids. Linda is a passionate advocate for the Nordic outdoor tradition Friluftsliv, and believes that the best childhood memories are created outside while jumping in puddles, digging in dirt, catching bugs, and climbing trees. Her latest book, The Open Air Life, Discover the Nordic Art of Friluftsliv and Connect with Nature Every Day, was published earlier this month. I have wanted to interview Linda ever since I read her first book, and I was delighted to talk with her about her latest book. In this conversation, we discuss Linda's experiences parenting bilingual and bicultural daughters, as well as her own experiences with bilingualism and biculturalism. We talk about the Nordic preschool curriculum and parallels with the Montessori approach to early childhood. We also talk about the benefits of being outside for both children and adults and how we can motivate ourselves to spend more time outdoors. You can find Linda on Facebook and Instagram at Rain or Shine Mama. That's Mama with two M's. And her website is RainOrShineMama.com. Her latest book, The Open Air Life, is available everywhere books are sold. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Linda. <laughs>